Both scripture lessons this morning kind of play with one of the most pervasive metaphors that exist in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I'll explain what's happening in this passage from Jeremiah in a moment. For, for now, just listen to the metaphor Jeremiah is using. Chapter 50, In those days and at that time, says the Lord, the people of Israel shall come together with the people of Judah, and they shall come weeping as they seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned towards it and they shall come to join themselves with God in everlasting covenant that God will never forget. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away and the mountains. From mountain to hillside they are just gone. They can't find their way home. All who found them have devoured them and their enemies have said, we're not guilty because they've sinned against the Lord, the true pasture, the Lord, the hope of their ancestors. And then in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus picks up on the same scripturally pervasive metaphor in one of his rustic little yarns. So Jesus told him this parable, <clears throat> which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them won't leave the 99 in the wilderness to go find the lost lamb. And when the shepherd finds it, he lays it over his shoulders and rejoices. And when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found the sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So on Sunday mornings and on Tuesday evenings, this Lent at Kenilworth Union Church, Joe and Katie and I are talking about gifts from the dark wood. That's actually a provocative title written by a friend of mine. His name is Eric Elness. He's the senior minister at the Countryside United Church of Christ in Omaha. So on Ash Wednesday, we talked about the honesty of confession. Last week on the first Sunday of Lent, Joe talked about temptation and today, lostness. I hope you find that title as provocative as I do. Uh, Eric Elness is talking about gifts that don't look like gifts when we first experience them. When we go through them initially, they seem like curses or at least like confusions or frustrations. They happen when our lives are dark. They happen when our lives are entangled in a thicket. Today, the experience of lostness. You know that verb to lose is actually one of the more fecund and versatile verbs in the English language, isn't it? So many things you can lose. You can lose your keys, you can lose your wallet, you can lose your savings, you can lose the war, you can lose the game, you can lose an argument, you can lose the election, you can lose the weight, you can lose your cool, you can lose your temper, you can lose your virginity, you can lose your innocence, you can lose your mind. You can lose your husband. You can lose your life. You will lose your life. You can lose your way. 
One insurance company calculated that the average person loses about nine objects a day, which means that when you reach my age, you've lost 200,000 objects during your lifetime. Now, most of them you'll get back, but you will never get back the lost time you spent looking for the lost things. In my case, six months of my life spent looking for lost objects. Americans spend $30 billion a year on lost cell phones. Now, the book of Jeremiah is one long, sad catalog of catastrophe, loss after loss after loss. Jeremiah began his prophetic career about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, and so he is living during the darkest days of the Judean kingdom. Babylon, the world's only superpower at the time, is on a rampage. They are eating smaller countries for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And Jeremiah has a box seat to this collapse and destruction. He's watching this whole thing the whole time. First, he loses his freedom. They've thrown him in jail. He's so pessimistic and negative about his country that his compatriots think of him as treasonous, so they throw him in jail. First he loses his freedom, then he loses his temple. The Babylonians pull it down stone by stone and then set the whole pile on fire. Then Jeremiah loses his king, Zedekiah, the last Judean king. The Babylonians enslave him and cart him off to Babylon, but before they enslave him, they blind him. They gouge out his eyes. And before they blind him, they kill his two sons, so that that's the last thing he will see on this earth. And then Jeremiah loses his country. All of his compatriots, his kinfolk, are cartered off to Babylon with chains on their ankles, wrists, and collars to pick cotton and clean toilets for their slave masters. And so having lost so much, it's not surprising that Jeremiah picks up on one of those common themes from the Scriptures. His people, he thinks, his friends are like sheep without a shepherd, or more accurately, like sheep with bad shepherds. My people have been lost sheep, he says. Their shepherds have led them astray on every mountainside. They can't find their way home. And of course, Jeremiah has no monopoly on this image. It appears over and over again, right? Shepherd boy David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. In John, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. In Luke 15, Jesus says, Which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one, won't leave the ninety-nine in the desert to find the lost lamb? My people have been lost sheep, says Jeremiah. Their shepherds have led them astray. He's lost so much. His freedom, his temple, his king, and his land. But one thing he's not lost is his hope. These lost folks, says Jeremiah, these lost folks shall find their way back to Zion and join themselves to God in an everlasting covenant that God will never forget. The way Luke tells the story, Jesus picks up the same theme. When he finds the lost lamb, he slings it over his shoulders and goes home where there's a mad party. And so if you feel lost just now, would it help to know that somebody's looking for you? When my daughter was about seven years old, she was part of this tight little girl gang 
who loved to play hide-and-seek. And one of my daughter's friends was named Rachel, and Rachel was the champion of hide-and-seek. She could find and wedge herself into, indoors and out, wedge herself into these clandestine closets and crevices that no one would think to look. And so long after every other child has been sought and found, and after they'd hopped on their bikes and gone down to the 7-Eleven for a Slurpee, out would come Rachel from wherever it was she was hiding and wandered to home base, and she would always look so disconsolate. She was always so discouraged. One day I said to her, Honey, why so sad? You won. And she said, Why is there never anybody who's trying to find me? And I wanted to say, Honey, there is somebody who's trying to find you, but I didn't think it was appropriate to preach a sermon to a forlorn seven-year-old. If you feel lost just now, will it help to know that somebody's looking for you? And would it help to remember that the one who's looking for you is the one who threw the whole sprawling wilderness across the canvas in the first place? So that there is no forest so dense, there is no canyon so cul-de-sac, there's no desert so barren, and there's no precipice so hazardous from which God can't lead you home. And so if you're lost, maybe it's time to blaze a new path. My friend Eric in his little book says that as he looked back over the life that he's lived in retrospect, it occurs to him that his greatest accomplishments and joys follow periods of what he thought would be failure and loss and frustration. When we let go of what we are, we can become what God means us to be. When we leave the old behind, we can become something fresh, and you. And so the chair of the search committee, which called me to the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, was a guy named Buzz Larson. His actual name was Conrad, but everybody called him Buzz. He was an adventure. Buzz was fearless. He was 78 years old when he chaired this committee, and I was 32 years old when he chose me. And so when I showed up at this church with five years of experience, and a staff that had children my age, they put me in charge, the congregation was horrified. They would come to Buzz and say, would you please explain this eccentric decision? And Buzz would just say, let's give it a whirl. So Buzz made his living by selling lumber. For 40 years, he would drive 35,000 miles up and down the shore of Lake Michigan. His territory was western Michigan. He'd drive 35,000 miles every year from Niles to Petoskey, peddling his roof rafters and his plywood. And Buzz was legendary among his family and colleagues for investigating underexplored landscapes. So he'd be driving up 131 in western Michigan, and he'd see one of these two-track fire roads that sprawl through the state forest of Michigan. They start at the highway in Cadillac, and they dead end on the beach at Lake Michigan. And Buzz would look there and he'd say, hmm, I wonder where that goes. He'd drive his car onto these two tracks. Or he'd be on vacation in the Badlands out west with his family, and he'd see this overgrown, dark, rocky path along the side of the road. And he'd pull the car off the road, and he'd say, hmm, I wonder where that goes. And off they'd be on a two-hour hike. They were always getting lost, and they were always finding these wonderful serendipities, an elk, a waterfall, a red fox, a cascading brook, one time a black bear. 
So he sold lumber for 40 years, and he quit when he was 80. When he was 72 years old, he bought himself this sporty, used BMW convertible. And I said to him, Buzz, are you having a midlife crisis? And he said, Bill, I'm only 72. It's way too early for a midlife crisis. When he was 84, they told him he had six months to live. I forget what was wrong, probably cancer, that emperor of all maladies. And I went to see him when he got this sad diagnosis to see how he was doing, and he said, Bill, I'm not afraid. I'm looking forward to the last great adventure of my life. I'm not afraid to give up something good to find something better. So there he was, cruising down the highway of life, and he looks off to the side of the road, and he sees this thorny, rocky, dark path. And he goes, huh, death. I wonder where that goes. Catherine Schultz wrote this touching article in The New Yorker a couple of issues back. She'd lost her father. Her father died. She was just distraught and bereft. She began thinking about the comprehensiveness of the experience of loss. How many smaller losses maybe are rehearsals for the bigger losses of our life? So she remembers losing her car keys. She remembers losing a bike lock. Then she loses the bike. Then she loses her truck. And it's one of these monster trucks the size of Nevada. She goes to an event at a bookstore, forgets where she parked it, spends two hours wandering around every block looking for this monster truck. She finally finds it in the unlikeliest of places. And she reflects upon the universality of this experience, how many things there are to lose. And she stops herself and says, you know, in the end, it's not losing that's remarkable. It's all we find. So you meet a stranger passing through your town and know within a couple of days that you're going to marry her. Or you lose your job at the age of 55 and stumble upon new, some new endeavor with which to end your career. You have a thought and you find the words. You face a crisis and you find the courage. And so the impermanence of things make the things we love more precious, not less. Disappearance reminds us to notice. Transience to cherish and fragility to defend. One day, all of it will be lost, even our lives. Therefore, we spend our days honoring what we find to be noble and denouncing what we cannot abide. Why isn't there somebody who's trying to find me, says seven-year-old Rachel? There is. And when that one finds you, that one will sling you over his shoulders and bring you home where there will be a mad party. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.